said, amen, amen. You can turn in your copy of God's word once again to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians will be finishing this wonderful letter, a letter which some think was perhaps the first letter to a church Paul ever wrote. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but some do think that. We'll be looking at verses 23 to 28 today. Kind of two parts, a, uh, a intention, a prayer from Paul, and then final instructions to the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you that the instructions that were given 2,000 years ago are still so relevant for us today. We ask that you would write these truths upon our hearts and help us to acknowledge you and that you would shape us through them. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Paul's conclusion to this church. And remember, this was a a three-week-old church when he left them. They have a revival Timothy has gone back to find out how the church is doing. He's brought a generally good report, and Paul's been giving instructions to the church. He started off the letter trying to uh, sort of navigate their relationship to make sure that they understood his heart for them, his heart as a pastor, but then ending in the last two chapters with a lot of practical instructions. You see, these are uh, young believers. They need a lot of instruction, and so Paul's given them uh, many things to do. Uh, over a dozen, he's exhorted them to avoid sexual immorality, to love one another, to live quietly and work to own their own, um, to earn their own living, to encourage one another in Christian hope. He's exhorted them to be sober-minded and clear-headed, to be watchful against sin, to put on faith, hope, and love, to honor the church elders, to speak God's word to one another, to avoid paying back evil for evil, to rejoice in God's grace, to practice a life of prayer and of thanksgiving, to value God's word and his spirit, to exercise Christian discernment, to hold fast to what is good and reject evil. He's given all these commands and he, in a sense, concludes and wraps up all these instructions uh, with this intention, with this well-wish that he gives, where he says in verse 23, may God himself, The God of peace sanctify you through and through. That's what all this is geared towards. They're being made holy, sanctified, being purified to be more like Christ. He says, now may God, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. It's interesting. You might think this is a prayer. It's not quite a prayer. He's not addressing God, he says to them, may God himself sanctify you. It's kind of like a a sanctified intention, a well-wish, or almost like a pre-prayer. Like you might write in a birthday card, may God richly bless you this year. 
It's saying, my heart for you is that God would bless you. And then you might actually make that a prayer. God, would you bless this person? Paul's communicating his heart for the church. What he wants for this young church is that they would be sanctified. In chapter one, we read that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. He wants them to learn this new way of life, to follow these many instructions he's given them to be made holy. And he prays, he intends, he wishes that God would be the one making them holy. He says, the God of peace sanctify you. The reason they can even start this sanctification journey is because Jesus has made peace through the blood of the cross, reconciling them to God. So he says, the same God of peace sanctify you through and through. That is, sanctify you completely, fully, bring it to completion, bring it, see it through all the way to the end. Spirit, soul, and body. That is to say, your outer self, your inner self, the material part of your existence, the immaterial part of your existence. All of you is to be sanctified to God. The actions with your hands, the thoughts of your mind, your motivations, everything brought into obedience to Christ sanctified, made holy and useful to God. And he says, may it be kept. That is, may it be guarded, watched, observed, kept blameless, free from blame at the coming of Christ. That is, may you be made holy all the way to the end that you would make it through. Paul's heart for the church is that they would be a faithful church, that they would stay faithful in love and obedience to God that they would practice, um, as Eugene Peterson puts it, a long obedience in the same direction. Isn't that what we want? A long obedience in the same direction. It's a call for the faithfulness of the church. Revelation 14, 12, it says, here's a call for the perseverance of the saints. That's what we want to see. The saints persevere in holiness all the way to the end. But beautifully, what underlies this faithfulness of the church, the foundation of the faithfulness of the church is the faithfulness of God. He says in verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Isn't this interesting? He says, I want God to sanctify you through and through that you be kept blameless. God is faithful and he will do it. The faithfulness of the church is predicated on the faithfulness of God himself. One of the, uh, we call in Reformed churches, the doctrines of grace is often called the perseverance of the saints. That those whom God has called and justified and regenerated, they never lose their regeneration and a true believer will persevere all the way to the end of life. Maybe there's backsliding, maybe there's setbacks, but they persevere, which is true. It's a good doctrine, the faithfulness of the church. But some have flipped it around and say, maybe we could also call it the preservation of the saints. That God is the one preserving his people. And the God who's committed himself to his people will preserve them all the way through to the end. And both are true. The saints persevere because God preserves. Because God preserves the saints persevere. 
And this is especially important as we have been for the last many weeks thinking about these issues of sanctification, how to live a holy life. We're thinking, okay, how can I practice sexual holiness? How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I be one who uses my voice to encourage the faint-hearted? How can I learn to pray continually and rejoice without ceasing? We want to pursue these ways of holiness, but we need to do it remembering that we do it on the basis of our preserving God. That though we are maybe in that uh, rowboat of life, using all our strength to row across the lake, uh, our rowing is not keeping us afloat, but uh, the boat itself. The Lord is keeping us afloat even as we work hard in the faith. And this is really the tension sort of of the Christian life. We have many commands. Do this, don't do this. Do that, don't do that. Commands given to us, but ones we follow knowing that God is holding us. We do it with that motivation, that encouragement, that safety, that God is at work. As Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good purpose. So it says, you work knowing that God is working. People like to talk about, on one hand, we have God's sovereignty, and on the other hand, we have human responsibility and freedom. And we need to learn to think from both perspectives. And some think, well, they're not compatible. If God is sovereign, how could humans be free and responsible, or the other way around? But uh, many Reformed thinkers confess a doctrine, a philosophy that we might call, well, that is called compatibilism, okay? There's your big word for the day, compatibilism, which is really not that complicated. It's just to say that we believe, whether we can understand it or not, that God's complete sovereignty and human freedom are compatible. They work together some way we know not how. Uh, Now, I'm neither a scientist nor the son of a scientist, but I've heard it said that uh, light acts as both a particle and a wave. And how this can be is somewhat mysterious and unknown. They seem totally contradictory. The way waves work and um, the way particles work, and yet light seems somehow to be both. And we say it's both because that's the evidence we have in our lives, though we might not understand the mechanics. The same thing we confess, that God is both totally sovereign, humans are responsible for their actions, and yet they somehow go together. We may not understand the mechanisms or processes, but we confess it. And why is this important? Well, we need both the heavenly perspective and the earthly perspective to stay well-ballast in life, okay? Because if you only hold on to the human perspective, that perseverance, it's on me to persevere, if you only have that perspective, you laden yourself with anxiety because you know your own weaknesses, you know your proneness to wander and falter, and that's a difficult weight to bear. If you think it's all on you, you become um, what we see in many Reformed churches are people who are uh, fruit checkers in their own life, and you're such a fastidious fruit checker. You're looking at the fruit of your life, and you're thinking, uh, is this apple of my life well-formed enough? Is it sweet enough? I think I found a worm in it. Maybe I'm not an apple tree after all, because if I was, I would have perfect apples all around. 
and you can get obsessive with this. And you need to counter that with that heavenly perspective that God is at work preserving. God is at work seeing it that his people will make it all the way to the end. He's carrying us when we can hardly carry ourselves. We need to unlate Christ's yoke is easy and light. He unburdens us and calls us to pursue uh, the garden of God with joy, to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, not to think that it's all on us. We need that heavenly perspective, but we also need that perseverance perspective. Because if all you have is a God preserving and doing all the work, what that leads to then is laxness in the faith and laziness and patterns of sin that ultimately steal your joy and corrupt you. You need that human perspective of perseverance to encourage you to pursue what is ultimately to your good. Uh, it'd be like someone getting a full-ride scholarship to university this fall, and they think, hey, I'm in. I don't need to go to class. I don't need to do the homework because I'm already here. I've attained it. No, we've been given it all in Christ. We hold on to that, and yet we work hard in the Lord. Paul is passionate about the holiness of God's people, but also steadfastly confident in the faithfulness and grace of God. This is his wish for the congregation. He knows that the local church is the incubator of holiness. All this is going to come to the church together in community. Uh, these members of the church, they're like hatchlings or they're like eggs under that warm glow of an incubator, right? You remember doing that in kindergarten? You get the chicken eggs. And uh, the church is like that warm glow where we all come together and are warmed in the spirit and the church is itself a holiness incubator. We're meant to do this together, like that ark, captured together in the midst of the sea. And Paul's last four instructions are instructions for the church that relate to the church being the church. Because all this is happening, this obedience is happening together as a people of God who've been called together week by week to do the ordinary means of worship. Uh, you might not notice this if you were just reading, but think of the implications for these final four words from Paul. He says, verse 25, brothers, pray for us. He's giving an instruction to the whole church. He's saying, all you Thessalonian believers, pray for us. And what does that mean? The pray for us there, it's like, well, pray for Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are missionaries, evangelists, and church planters going about spreading the work of the gospel. So if we were to generalize from this instance, he's saying pray for the work of God in the world. Pray for the workers in God's vineyard, right? What was one of the only things Jesus directly instructed his people to pray for? He said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He also said, you know, pray your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be thy name. Part of the calling of the church as the church even, is to pray for the continued work of God in this world, for the mission of the gospel going forth. And this is an actually important instruction for the church, because when the church is called to turn away from looking at itself and look at what the work of God is happening in the world, that helps protect the church from being insular, 
from infighting, from worrying so much about my preferences and how we're doing with this or that, when we are constantly attuned to where is the gospel at work? Where are God's workers in the vineyard? How can we support them? How can we be about the mission of God in this world? That outward perspective uh, is an antidote to much of the rot that can creep in when we're just focused on ourselves, just focused on building bigger barns, on preserving, on holding on to the status quo. He says, brothers, pray for us. The church had a lot of problems, difficulties, issues, but he still asked them, pray for us. And that's partly why this summer we've been asking you to pray about church planting. Pray about what the work of God in starting new worshiping communities might look like. What it might look like even in Easttown, in this area to the side of us, our own backyard. What would it look like for new worshiping communities to be formed? People called together to be a new lampstand in the area where the Holy Spirit is moving. More holiness incubators in underserved areas. And so in our instance, I say, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for the elders of Cedar Church. Pray for myself and Julie and Pastor Steve that we would have wisdom, strength, guidance, insight as we seek to discern God's will for how the gospel might go forward in the planting of a new church, the formation of a new worshiping community. Pray for support from our presbytery. Pray for our denomination that God's will would be done, that his kingdom would be expanding. Let's be a church that's all about the hallowing of God's name, more and more people becoming worshipers of God. Pray for us. Paul instructs the church in this posture of prayer. Also, he instructs them in verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. He's instructing here, particularly the one who's going to receive the letter. So the person who receives the letter, he says, hey, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And by extension, he's encouraging the church to be a greeting church, one who greets one another with a uh, sign of cultural welcome, a kiss in this instance, uh, a holy kiss though, one that's set apart and is um, sanctified unto usefulness in the church of God. Now, there was some history to this in the early church. They actually practiced um, passing along a kiss of greeting at the time of the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is to be an especial mark of our unity and fellowship. They would greet one another, um, the men to the men and the women to the women, with what was called the kiss of peace, acknowledging their unity. Uh, this formed into what later traditions might call passing the peace, where um, people greet one another saying, peace be with you and also with you. A reminder of the peace God has called us to and the unity we have. But even from a broader perspective, um, one of the implications of this is that in order to greet one another, you need to be in physical proximity to one another, to have a physical greeting like a kiss, to actually have skin to skin, physical proximity because the church exists as a community of embodied relationships, physical people in a physical place together worshiping God. He's encouraging them to greet one another, implying they're to be together, not just worshiping on their own unless providentially hindered, but worshiping together. 
It's also a reminder then that the church is not just a place to come and to go, but a place to come and to pause, to greet one another. Now, I know it's easy to have social anxiety. No one really likes small talk, but even a mere greeting, a hi, nice to see ya. Hey, glad you're here today. Hey, have a great week. Acknowledging our brothers and sisters is powerful. And I know many um, in the church, uh, it's easy sometimes to feel invisible. And even just the virtue of being acknowledged, you exist. That can be powerful in and of itself. The church is to be a greeting people, a place of fellowship, a place of prayer, but also a place of the word of God. Verse 27, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Also instructing the recipient that this letter from an apostle of God, that apostolic instruction would be disseminated to the church by being read. More than many other religions, Christianity is a word and text-based religion. We have a text that we go to. He's instructing, he wants everyone to hear the letter read, not just the letter summarized, not just the main ideas put forth, but to be actually read in the people's hearing that they would hear every single word this apostle of God intended to convey. Now the church itself, we're told in scripture, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostolic teaching as given us in scripture, is the foundation of the church. And so Paul will later tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Because you see, preaching and teaching is to be based upon texts from scripture. That is why we practice in our churches exegetical preaching, Preaching that's not just communicating good philosophy or psychology, but is based on texts, verses, words from Scripture. And, you know, what are some of the popular things people like to say uh, in our confused information age? Uh, you know, what's your sources? Or, oh, you should check your sources, right? Everyone wants everyone to be checking the sources. Well, we've been saying that for the past 2,000 years, church, when you're being preached things, taught things, check your sources, Go back to the source in the word of God. You guys are all commissioned to be fact checkers of every sermon you hear. Because whatever does not align with the word of God, you can toss out the window. You guys are to compare everything to the word of God, the holy scriptures that make us wise for salvation. We believe in preaching, but preaching that is born from the foundation of the text of scripture itself. All these average elements of our worship services, fellowship, prayer, the reading of the scriptures, and lastly, blessing. Verse 28, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. An example of an apostolic blessing, intending once again that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with you. He blesses the church with this wish, this prayer, that the grace of Christ would be with them. And isn't that the most wonderful blessing you could wish upon someone? The grace of Christ to be with them. What's the grace of Christ? The grace of Christ is simply everything good that comes to you through Jesus. 
And because everything good that comes to you through Jesus is undeserved, it's all grace. God's grace is his goodness exercised towards those who don't deserve it. His grace is his goodness exercised towards those who don't deserve it. All the good we have in Christ, the goods of election, of calling, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, and eventual glorification, all these blessings we have in Christ, a sense of the love of God, peace in our conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, hope of eternal life, good things. And he says, would this grace be with you? What does that mean it would be with you? It means that wherever you go, you're aware of it. You're cognizant of the fact that God has been good to you in Jesus. It's a practice of mindful awareness. It's like if you're hanging out with a friend, there's times where you might be consciously engaged in communication with your friend, right? We can think of that with God as intentional times of worship, but there's also might just be times you're hanging out or you're going to the store and you're kind of doing your own thing, but you're aware that they're there. Your friend is there with you. You're not maybe directly engaging, but you're still having a consideration of them. Uh, you don't just automatically pick where you're going to go eat. You maybe say, oh, well, where would you like to go? You're wondering how is what you're doing affecting your friend? And this is the withness that we should have with the grace of God. There are times in prayer where we're being intentionally thankful, intentionally reflective of God's grace. As we heard a couple of weeks ago, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks. But yet, when the grace of God is with us, it's learning to walk in this constant awareness that there's grace before me, grace behind me, grace above me, grace below me, because God has been so good to me in Jesus. And you learn what it means to walk aware of that, to walk mindful of that. When anxieties come, when fears come, when sadnesses come, aware of the goodness of God shown through Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. We practice blessings like this in our churches. We call it the benediction, which simply means the blessing. Where a minister on behalf of Christ, as a representative of Christ, raises his hands and pronounces God's blessing upon you. Uh, we can think of these blessings in the narrow sense and the broad sense. Broadly, all Christians, we can bless one another, pray God's good over one another, bless our children. But in the narrow sense, there's a special gift given to ministers of the gospel who have been commissioned, authorized, and set apart to act as representatives of Christ, speaking Christ's words to you, that when the minister raises his hands to bless you and says, look up to receive God's blessing, you are seeing it as Christ himself speaking those words of blessing over you. I didn't grow up in a tradition that had a benediction, and it's become uh, perhaps my favorite part of the worship service, that whether I was convicted of sin called higher, I leave being reminded that the love of God, the grace of Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with me because I am God's in Christ. The blessing, what a wonderful part of worship to receive week by week. The church is this incubator of holiness 
through these ordinary means, these ordinary means by which grace is communicated to God's people, prayer, fellowship, the reading of the scriptures, the blessing from God. This is not much different than what the early church devoted themselves to in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And in this, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Church, that's what we're called to devote ourselves to. Uh, We've received many instructions, ideas in this letter, but we come back week by week. We come back to hear the word of God read and explained, to pray together, to greet one another, to receive God's blessing. And we seek to stoke that fire and to carry it with us throughout the week as we continue these practices in our families, in our homes, in our prayer closets. The Lord strengthens us little by little. Occasionally, he gives us a growth spurt, but it's the daily rhythms. It's these regular practices God calls us to by which holiness is being warmed and incubated and grown in the church of God. The church was God's idea, bringing these communities together. Because you know what? God wants to bless you guys. God longs to bless you. He desires that every week you would be sent out knowing, believing that his face is going to shine upon you, that he will be gracious to you, that he will lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's heart is not uh, to stress you or condemn you or to minimize you, but to see you blessed with his favor. And that's why this whole thing was his idea. And the only way that you could be a recipient of God's blessing God knew the only way that you could be this recipient of these oceans of love he has in store is because, is through that death and resurrection of Christ, where Christ himself received the curse of God that you might receive the blessing of God. Christ himself received the punishment for sin that you might be forgiven for sin. The Lord's face was turned away from his son that his face might shine upon you. He died that you might die to sin. He was raised that you might be raised to life, to the life and liberty of the children of God. He called you to himself. He broke through your stubborn heart and called you, produced faith in your heart and has called you to himself, to a life of joyful following after Jesus. And what a grace that is. What a goodness that is that God would be so good to such as us to bring us into the fold, to return us to the family of God. So the blessing of God comes to us, and all we do is we bless in return. We respond to that final benediction with a doxology, a simple response of praise. God, you've blessed us so richly. Praise be to your name. Praise be to ever. And as that uh, old hymn says, that when we've been in uh, the new world, for 10,000 years, 10,000 times 10,000 years, we won't even feel like we've started scratching the surface on how much praise God deserves. We'll feel like there's so much more to praise, so much more to enjoy, so much more to delight in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Thank you that your heart is for your people's good. Your heart is to bless 
We thank you for the Christ who came with grace upon grace. Grant us that grace once again, grace to be holy, grace to be fully sanctified, grace to walk in your ways, grace to repent of sin, grace to practice righteousness, grace to love one another, grace to worship wholeheartedly. Bless your people once again, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.